Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. guys you've been here i think this is week oh i gotta check my notes this is week four so week four of keys to the kingdom if you have not been able to grab one of these necklaces in the back i would encourage you to it is just a token of of remembrance to remind us of what this passage and what this series really entails for us as believers that the kingdom would be based not upon an individual but upon the revelation of who jesus is and when i say an individual an individual other than christ an individual that we could say, oh, the keys were given to him, to Peter, or today to someone else. Because the keys are still given to the church, the collective people who gather around this revelation of who Jesus is for their life. And so that's where we started this series in Matthew 16. And we're going to continue to build upon what are these keys of the kingdom. And last week, we looked at humility. Uh, we looked at how humility is really the, the tracks that a lot of the th- other things that we experience in our relationship with God run upon. That it is what takes us towards God's grace. It is what positions us to receive what He wants to do in our life. That humility is really a starting block. It's, it should be a hallmark of our faith. And, um, and, and so that was such a great, a great message last week that I feel like the Lord really kind of showed me through the Scripture not what I intended to preach Um, Didn't see that originally, but I felt like that is exactly what was there in the text. And so today was what I had intended to preach last week. And it's something that I think that when we talk about Christ and His purpose for coming, today's key, so to speak, is probably one of the most Christ-like, one of the most crucial and, and maybe even climactic as far as a reason for why He came. And when I talk about, you know, why Jesus came, I think about how he came to what? Seeking to save the lost. He came to make atonement and provide redemption uh, for all mankind. And he came to remove our sins and also to restore, to bring reconciliation between us and God. And so today, what Christ has done for us, this key of forgiveness, is so pivotal, pivotal in our relationship both with God but also with one another. And so when we walk in the, in the lane of forgiveness, we are walking in some of the most Christ-like attributes that we could possibly walk in. And this isn't always easy. Let me go ahead and just go on the record that when we talk about extending and giving forgiveness to others, this isn't just, oh yeah, that's, that's Christianity 101. That should be easy. That should be a piece of cake. Just because it may be Christianity 101, it may be entry level, it doesn't mean that it is an easy journey and process to, to unfold and to walk in in our own lives. Quite the opposite. You see that even Christ, it, it cost him his life. His, his cohort, his disciples didn't quite understand that, really, Jesus, it's got to happen this way? And in our own lives, we may even think, really, God, forgiveness has to look like this. You want me to forgive that person? And this can be a really difficult thing for us to to engage in as the Lord has shown it to us. And so Webster, just in a simple definition of what forgiveness is, he says this, 
Forgiveness is to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, a flaw, or a mistake. It is a canceling of a debt. Forgiveness is something you give to someone who has wronged you. Forgiveness is when you no longer count their sin against them. God says in in the scripture that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sin from us. So where does the east and where does the west, where does it begin in, in, in the circumference of the earth? Where does it even start? The position of that scripture would have probably been the Middle East and, and maybe we're the west from where that was written. I don't know. But, but you know that it, it has no beginning, it has no end. It isn't a place where you can find a point of meeting. The, for, the forgiveness that we have experienced has removed our sin, our debt has been canceled in such a way that you're not even going to be able to find it. And, and honestly, that sounds really too good to be true because I have a really hard time sometimes forgiving myself. I can remember my own offense of how maybe I've offended someone else. Uh, it, relationships are so, so important to me. I don't know if it bothers you as much, but when a relationship isn't right for me, I don't eat well, I don't sleep well. I think until that relationship is restored... The, the earth doesn't spin the same. Like it just it throws me off kilter a little bit. I don't like I don't like knowing if there is something that I can do to restore it. I want to I want to try that. And, and I know there's timing and I know that there's situations that have to kind of process, but it is so hard for me sometimes to give those moments in my life to the Lord and say, okay, God, but you I really want to make this right. I want to, I want to confess my sin. I want to ask for forgiveness for my part. I want to own this side of the situation. I want this relationship to be right. And sometimes you know that we can give forgiveness, but it's a very different thing from reconciliation. See, for forgiveness, it is something where we no longer are holding something wrong done to us against that person. It is canceling the debt, but it doesn't mean that the relationship has been restored. Those are two very different things. And so we can give forgiveness, and that may be the 101 class, but reconciliation would maybe be a second level, right? To actually see that through in the relationship with others. And, and here's what the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary in my study, just looking up forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the wiping out of an offense from memory. It can be affected only by the one affronted. And once erected, the offense no longer conditions the relationship between the offender and the one affronted. Harmony is restored between the two. This is a biblical definition of of how we have forgiveness between us and Christ. But the process that we walk through in our relationships on earth may look and take a little bit more time, may require us to, to humble ourselves, right? Because humility, we said, was the beginning of receiving all good things from, from God. We recognize our dependency upon Him for His grace, and that's the beginning of where we can even receive forgiveness. So both human forgiveness, it says here, and divine forgiveness, the latter is the divine act by which the removal of sin and its consequences are affected. And today, I want us to really dive into this. I want us to dive into what does it mean for the kingdom to forgive? What does it mean from a kingdom perspective to receive it? And how do we then walk in it? How do we extend it? Have you ever been offended before? You ever had someone that it was really hard to forgive them? You didn't want to? Who was it really holding back though 
It wasn't holding them back. Forgiveness is the bitter root that keeps us from moving forward. And I believe today the Lord's really going to speak to us as we dive into our passage in Matthew 18. Before we go any further, though, would you join me in prayer? Father, I just ask that you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as individuals and as a church. God, right now, I sense even in our culture that unity and forgiveness and the pathway to togetherness is anything but what we want to fight for. But Lord, these are your kingdom's principles. These are the ways of heaven, of restoration, of unity around the things that reflect who you are. Lord, I just ask that you would help us in some of the difficult places of our life where people have really hurt us, have left us wounded maybe even. God, I pray that today your spirit will continue to pour out the balm of Gilead and bring healing to some of these places in our heart. God, I pray that we would be able to forgive ourselves, that we would be able to receive the forgiveness that you have given to us, not just in head knowledge, but in a heart lifestyle. God, we receive it from you today. Holy Spirit, illuminate our time in your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If you're flipping some paper pages, we're going to be looking through Matthew 18. Uh, I'll put some of them on the screen. Some of them, I'm not sure. But last week, we looked at where the disciples asked Jesus, well, who's the greatest? Right? Isn't that what all of them wanted to know? Jesus, who is the greatest in your kingdom? And he compared it to becoming like a child, humbling ourselves. And Jesus goes on and he talks about, hey, anyone who causes someone who was walking in humility and who was walking in complete dependence upon a heavenly father, woe to you who would throw anything different upon them. Woe to you who would say, no, that's not exactly the way a relationship with God works. Woe to you. And he's speaking to the crowds with full of religious folks, which how many of you realize we have made our relationship with God anything but just childlike dependency upon the Father? We have added uh, things that we have to do, things that, you know, protocol we need to follow, a lifestyle we need to lead in order to find acceptance from God, which is something we've already been given. And today, I think we build upon these woes, so to speak, as Jesus moves through the woe to you who would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Woe to you who would, who would say that hard work and late hours and uh, is inefficiency with your time is better than dependency upon someone greater than yourself. Woe to you in this world of getting head and stepping on others to elevate yourself of making sure that you got what you needed no matter what it costs someone else. Woe to you who do not understand that in the kingdom, the first will actually be last and the last shall be first. Woe to you, Jesus is saying. This, this is the paradigm that he's painting for the crowd, for his disciples. And, and it's even something that they had exchanged this, this reliancy on self, this, hey, look what we can prop up, and we're going to exchange the image of the kingdom, even the image of God, for something that we can make with our own hands. I mean, isn't this what, this is what I see in, in Romans chapter 1, 
where Paul, in a different context, is writing to them and says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's just built upon the fact that the hallmark scripture of Luther's from Romans 1.17, that the righteous, what, are considered righteous by faith. That we inherit a righteousness not of our own, by faith. Through humility, we receive something that is not our own. And he's building upon that and saying, no, but look at those that have exchanged something that they can create with their own hands, and they'd rather have that than have the image of God in their life. And he goes on, he says, although they claim to be wise... Look what we can accomplish. The Tower of Babel is still alive and well in 2020. Look what we can do. Look what a Fortune 500 company I can work for. Look at what I can produce in my own life. Look at my value. Look at what my resume says. Look at how I can equate how good I am compared to you and and what kind of qualifications I have to offer something to this earth, to this world, to provide for myself, for my family. It all comes back to look at me instead of look at him. And we sing it in that song, and you guys have heard me talk about it before, about how everything must come from him, through him, and then back to him because he's worthy of it all. Not me, not you, but the only true king is worthy of it all. And they would... Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. This is a depravity that we're like, oh my goodness, that's so obvious. (laughs) Right? We can see those idols. But what about the idols that we have exchanged in our own self-sufficiency, in our own pride, that we have erected, that we have built, that we have said, hey, look, I don't... I don't know where the people are that are hearing the voice of God. I'm not hearing it. I'm not climbing up on that mountain as Moses was sent up to, uh, to encounter the Lord on Mount Sinai. And instead, we gather what we think is of value, the gold of our lives, and we fashion something that we can tangibly look at and touch. These are the things that we're drawn to to worship. And those idols may, may be so despicable to us because they're easy to identify, but the ones in our heart is the ones that Jesus is wanting to be enthroned over today. He says, don't despise the place of humble beginnings because humility will recognize that God is not concerned with the religious who think they have it all figured out, have it all together. Humility recognizes that the God we serve is a God of the disenfranchised. He fights for those who can't fight for themselves. Truth and justice are still the foundations of his throne. And Jesus doesn't come to look for only the found. No, he's coming to look for the lost. And that's the very next parable that he's talking about here in Matthew 18. You see, it goes from the conversation of who's the greatest to the temptation. Woe to you who put something on those who are walking humbly with their God as a child would with their father. And then he says, a sheep, one's lost. He's got a hundred, ninety-nine are found. Who do you think he's going after? He's going after the one that is lost. Jesus is saying the God we serve, the ways of our kingdom, aren't so much concerned with those who have it together and think they've got it figured out, but are concerned with the ones who are on the fringes. Jesus recognizes that those who were not recognized, whereas he wants to swing the pendulum in their favor, 
saying that there is no favoritism in the kingdom. And Romans is literally a book doing just that. He's laying the playing field. Paul is writing to them and saying, hey, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. You may think you have all these promises stacked in your favor, but it is still based upon faith, which comes through a humble dependency upon God. And I know that there are so many things right now that we could get our feathers ruffled about in 2020, but God is still about the disenfranchised. God is still about those who can't speak for themselves. He is still about those who the poor are still the ones that He is going to preach the gospel to. The brokenhearted are still the ones that He is going to bind up. He is going to heal not the well, but the sick. This is the anointing that is upon our Lord and hopefully is upon His church today. He did not come for the sick, but He came for those. He did not come for the well, but He came for those that were sick. He is the great physician because He is the one that we walk humbly before. The parable of the lost sheep, and then it takes us into the text that I want us to look at today, which is Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. And so Peter and John and the other guys are sitting there with him, and Jesus starts, he's continuing to teach. He's talked about how, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one wanders off? And Jesus says to them, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones would perish. If our Christianity is limited to Sunday morning gatherings or fellowship with believers, then it's not the same Christianity that I read about Jesus talking about in in Matthew 18. If our lives aren't fashioned in such a way to pursue the one that has wondered, then it might not line up with the same gospel that Jesus was about. If our lives, though, are positioned in such a way that we share the fellowship of the believers, but our concern is about the ones who have yet to come in the fold, yet to be joined to us, yet to find healing in the Father, then we might be on to something that Jesus was talking about. Because He is about the one who is far off and wants to bring them into the fold. He's not against the belief. He's not against us. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand that. Just because that sheep lives matter, right? That, that what is it? The, the goat's life? No, not the goat's life. But the, the sheep life does matter. But it's the one who is lost that He's after. Not the ones that are found. And so Peter and John, and, and they're listening to Jesus as He goes into these next few verses. I'm going to skip to verse 15. He says, if your brother or your sister sins, and it should say sins against you, that's what's in most manuscripts, he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won. You have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth, here's that kingdom language again, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Where did we hear that? We heard that in Matthew 16 at the revelation of Jesus. And here are the keys that are given to you. The church, of Hades, the church that, the, that the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. And he says, again, I truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be, 
it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So what does he, what does he start with? He starts with, hey, if your brother or your sister sins against you, go to them. Now, this is a substantial sin. This isn't about, hey, you offended me when you didn't shake my hand on Sunday morning. You walked right past me and you went straight for the coffee. Don't be offended. I haven't had any this morning. That's probably where I'm going first. Let's, let's go there now, okay? And so it's not, a, it's not a minor offense. Thanks, Christian. Cheers. It's not something trivial. It's not merely something personal in nature. It's it's not you hurt my feelings or you didn't invite me to this. Or This is a substantial sin. This is an issue in that person's life that is unlike Christ and they are unwilling. They are in open sin and rebellion and they know it. Okay, This is, this is a real matter of the faith that they are headed in a direction that is in opposition to God and His ways and His purpose for their life. And they have even done this in sin against you. And so you go to them with a microphone and a bullhorn, and you make sure everybody knows about it, right? Is that the first way we do it? No, not at all, because we're not interested in elevating ourselves. We're not interested in embarrassing the other person. We're interested in restoration. We're interested in, how did he say you would know if you won? If they listen to you, you have won. You have won them over. So winning is not based on, oh, man, did you see how they were squirming? They knew I knew their sin, and I'm about to tell some, po- some folks. All right, I'm about to post it. I'm about to go to the church with it. I'm about to talk to Pastor Mike. I'm about to tell some people. No, that is not the goal. <laughs> That's not how you win, according to what Jesus is saying here in walking in forgiveness. The word used here for listen, akuo, and in this particular sense, it is a, they have listened. It's an aorist tense. It's, it, the Greek word for listen, though, is to give careful attention to, to heed, to even follow, to obey. They have heard and understood a message. How many of you times have you talked to someone, but you knew they didn't hear you? I should see all the parents with teenagers right now going, mm-hmm. we, we don't even have teenagers yet, and I don't, I don't know what my kids' excuses are. They do not hear. They do not listen. <laughs> We've got certain kids that we even tried some auditory processing tests this week to see if one of them needed some help. He, he checked out, so I don't know what the real issue is. <laughs> True story. Sorry, Judah. I won't say this publicly. So <laughs> he's in the back. He can't hear. He'd be mortified. Yeah, he's not listening. He's not listening. <laughs> but you can talk to someone. And they can give you even the, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. This is every conversation with my wife, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'll walk right off. She's like, did you even hear a word I said? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> you know they're not listening. They did not comprehend. There is no understanding. They did not heed. They did not give careful attention to. There's a difference, though, here in when we go to approach someone, that the goal, the winning, how we measure the game is on, was there listening? There's a lot of things happening right now where everybody's on their side and they want their voice to be heard, and they don't care if there's understanding ever reached. There's, the, the game is based on different measurements here. And it's not a game I'm interested in winning. Because if I'm going to say something, there's even some folks right now that, hey, I, I love the videos they're posting and some of the stuff they're saying is very true and accurate, but it's how they say it that will probably never get people on the other side to ever listen and come to a place of 
good communication and even some mutual understanding, they're playing by different rules. They're, they're trying to win a different game. They're not interested in the game of, of reconciliation. They're interested in the game of my voice is louder than yours. My point, I believe, is more worth dying for than you. And so they want to elevate themselves. And I'm not, I've got people in mind and I could be wrong. I hope I am. But the way that we approach, and this is something that we have to process in ourselves, the way that we approach someone, if we are after forgiveness and restoration and what God was after in seeking and coming after us, then the way we measure the game is on, well, was there, list, was there understanding? Did you walk away from, from the conversation? Did you just get to say your part? Did they get to say theirs? Did you get to, did you get to use your, your speaker-listener technique <laughs> and, and repeat it back to them? So what I hear you saying is, is that when you talk to me, you feel like my uh-huhs mean that I'm not listening. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying to you, Michael. That's exactly, okay, I'm listening. I'm trying to understand. The goal of the game that we're playing is still this. And even though listening is, is something that we're after in the big substantial issues that I believe Jesus is approaching here, we can use this in everyday life. Communication, it's still, it's still the key. It's still one of the, it may not be the key to the kingdom, but it's the key to our good and healthy relationships. Communication, that we could still clear the air between one another. What else? What about negative interpretation? Maybe I'm the only one that does this. Someone will say one thing, or they don't even have to say anything. It's just their posture. It's body language. Because how many of you know that's probably 80% of what someone says? 80% is the unspoken. The other 20, uh-huh, mm-hmm. No, I see what's on your face. I see the way you're talking, you know. I see the way that head goes. And... But then I negatively interpret that you're actually against me. I, I'm already my worst critic, and I'm already dogging myself about how I'm messing up all my relationships. I'm already talking about how I have failed to myself. And so I'm negatively interpreting what you're saying to me right now over the lens of what I've been speaking to myself nonstop. And so it went from communication to where we should clear the air to now we should clarify what's really being communicated, whether verbal or not. I think this would have saved Peter a lot of heartache. So Jesus, when you, when you say you're going to die and then on the third, what you really mean is, he should, if he had had that speaker-listener technique card, I mean, Peter could have clarified a lot of things that he misinterpreted, right? Jesus had one in his, in his cloak or whatever he was wearing. He had it in his tunic. But to remove room for the flesh and even the enemy to wreak havoc in our relationships, we need to make sure that we're on the same page. At work, especially at work for Tara and Christian, and especially with their boss, they work with me. We've got to be able to say, hey, we don't want these wedges between us. I'm not going to let the enemy win. I'm going to come to you before I let my mind just start to wander before I let the enemy have his way and, and give him a, a gap in our armor, before that even happens, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to believe the best because that's love. Love always trusts. Love believes in. Read the definitions there that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13. And when we're walking in love, we want forgiveness. We want restoration. 
And that's what we're working towards, which is restoration. This is resolving issues quickly and giving that benefit of the doubt and opening opportunities for healing. This is what strong relationships are made of. This is the good, hard work of healthy relationships. How many of you know it is hard to have a good relationship with your spouse, uh, to be a good parent? Like the easy road is the lazy road, which leads to all this miscommunication. It leads to the festering. It leads to, ma'am, if my kid does that one more time. No, this is a teachable moment. I'm going to sit them down. We're going to talk this through. I'm going to count to 10 first. This was this morning before church. Like this was me. Like I, I had to do those things. Ellie, you're going to have to clean your room. I was thinking about not letting you go to church this morning, but that would not be the godly thing to do. <laughs> you may not go to a gender reveal this afternoon if your bedroom is not clean. These, and that was my tone, and it, was, it wasn't like, Ellie, oh my goodness! It wasn't the normal Michael. It was the, it was the I've counted myself off the ledge, and this is going to be a teachable moment for everybody. <laughs> because that's what we want. We want restoration. And we know our fleshly reaction isn't going to lead to that. It's going to push them away. It's going to widen that wedge that the enemy, our flesh, really wants because we can justify ourselves. And we play and rehearse and give in to something that isn't leading to what God really wants for our life, which is restoration in all of our relationships. So the win, it's listening, it's understanding. If they listen to you, you have won. If you have reached understanding, it's two ways. That's why my hands are doing this, and I should have a microphone on my ear. Because understanding is that, hey, no, they understood what I meant, so we're done. But we've got to understand where they're coming from as well. We've got to understand their culture, their upbringing, all these things that get really messy in the relationships that matter in our life. Because it is understanding and listening that brings us together, that allows the gel of forgiveness to flow like liquid on the regular. That's right. Play a, play a song. That, that's great. That sounds good. Verse 16, for if they will not listen, if you can't reach understanding, take a couple others with you. Not to gang up on them but because the matter needs to be established that the severity of the sin issue in a church, this isn't about the color of the carpet, this isn't on the fact that you didn't come last week, this isn't on, you know, you only gave 9% or whatever. I don't know what people fight about. I, I prefer not to get into those things in the church. Because this is a substantial lifestyle of sin, saying I'm going in a way that is counter to what he has for us. And he says, hey, this needs to be established upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this is a, a Deuteronomic law. This was a law of the Torah that they would adhere to. Deuteronomy 19.15 spells it out. It says, if one witness is not enough to convict anyone, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. God even establishes this spiritually, where we see Him confirm His promises, even confirm His nature and His identity with multiple miracles, with multiple witnessing moments of what was true and valid. Not only in crimes, but this should be something that we look to that, hey, maybe I'm mis misreading into this. 
Maybe something is really going on. And this was in, in the case of a secular civil law. I get that. But the crime had to be corroborated by two or three. And the notion is that the church then in turn would go and hope for a heart of understanding. If, if the two or three didn't work, then, then we need to, we're going to have to take some of the fellowship of believers. And, and I think many hear about this process but miss the heart The hopes remain that a listening ear and a heart of understanding would be on the recipient's side as well. And that through humility, we could extend grace and mercy. And so the imagery here, it takes us back to the binding and loosing. That as we walk in forgiveness, as we walk in restoration with one another, and in our daily relationships, we have the ability to to also bind the enemy in our lives, to loose God's freedom, to also keep people out. Because he talks about here about how, hey, there's people that are coming in and are espousing to doctrines that are anti-God. They're trying to dress them up and pretend that they are noble and worthy and even God-like, Christ-like. And he says you need to deal with it. And then if they won't deal with it, if they won't come to that understanding, then guess what? I'm, I'm sorry. You've tried. You tried multiple times, and if they're not willing to sit down and have that conversation and come to an an understanding, you're going to have to treat them as you would the Gentiles and the tax collectors. You can't walk unequally yoked. Not with believers, not with those that are claiming to follow Christ. He's not talking about the, the lost, those in the world, those that are saying nothing about their lifestyle and being a reflection of God, those that are agnostic, those that are whatever you, you want to label it. He's not talking about that. He's talking about those that are in the body of believers, those that are claiming to walk with Him, but are in complete opposition in their lifestyle. This is really, this is really touching. He says... Walk in humility and let it be evident by how we treat both those who are on the outside, the sheep that that are lost and wandering, as well as how we treat those on the inside. He says, walk in humility at the beginning of this chapter as a child would. And what does that look like? That means you care about those on the inside as well as those on the inside. That you walk in such a way that you care about the lost and those who have yet to heard the good news, but you also care about those that are in here that are walking in a way that is going to lead to destruction. That are going to walk in such a way that they have distorted the image of God. That is what sin is to me. It is anything that distorts and mars His image. They have exchanged the image of God for the likeness of something else that satisfies and, and gratifies the flesh. You need to warn them. Warn them. Well, what is it that Jude would say? It's, it's mercy that is mixed with fire, right? It's, it is, you've got to warn them. They are on a dangerous journey. Warn them. But your goal is understanding. Your goal is that, hey, they would listen. They would hear. They would have a soft heart. And that the image of Christ would be born in this relationship. And that is establishing His kingdom. And so here's Peter again. He's on the scene. And Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Hey, Lord, okay, I understand what you're talking about forgiveness. And you're talking about if someone has done me wrong. But can we talk about how many times? Can we talk about how many times I need to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? How about seven? 
So it was a common, it was a common uh, idea in Judaic practice that you would forgive three, maybe even four times. But after that, they're done. On the same occurrence, the same situation. Can you imagine if I, was, if I had grieved you in the same way? If I had sinned against you three times, oh, and I can't stop. I borrowed money, I didn't pay you back, and I squandered. But then the fourth time, you're, you're dead to me. <laughs> the Judaic practice, that was the standard. And Peter's throwing himself out there as the big-hearted guy. How about seven, Jesus? How's that sound? I almost doubled it. And, and what is Jesus' response? We know what he says. He's like, Peter, seven times? I don't say to you seven, but 70 times seven. He took a number that was a reflection, almost like how you would, I'm OCD just a tiny bit, and when we changed the, like the volume on the TV, I want it to be on 10 or 12 but not 11 or 14 but not 13. Definitely not 13, right? And so Peter chooses seven because in their culture it was kind of a, it was an even number. It was, it was a round whole number. It was a good number of even perfection. You could read into things like that. But in the culture, it was just like a good solid number to pick. And so he picked seven. And Jesus goes with that. He said, no, but keep multiplying it. Because the forgiveness I want you to walk in isn't a one-off forgiveness. It is a lifestyle. It isn't about how many times they grieve you. It's about how often it happens. You continue to operate and flow in it that you live in forgiveness. And unforgiveness is this. Unforgiveness for us as well as for Peter, it is, our, it is what keeps us in our past and causes us to live out of bitterness and resentment instead of God's grace. Because as I mentioned before, what is unforgiveness really doing to the other person? Anything? Do they even know? Do they even care about what they've done? They may not even realize. But here we are festering and even boiling in bitterness, angry, wishing we could get back at them. I want them to know what they've done to us. But that unforgiveness is only harming us. It is only keeping us back. It is never going to hurt anyone else other than the one that is offended. And so unforgiveness is what keeps us in our past. It literally chains us to our past, and it poisons our present, and it keeps us from what the Lord has for our future. You know, I read something this weekend that unforgiveness is like drinking the poison and hoping it kills the other person. That's what it's, that's what it's like doing. It's like, I'm so mad. I hope you got that. You know, who's the one stressed out? Who's the one angry? Who's the one on edge? You are, while they're off downtown in Market Square eating tacos at Soccer Taco, if they love Jesus. Well, even if they did hurt you, they might be on their way back. But the unforgiveness is only harming you. They're living their life. They're do- You've seen it. You're wishing, you're like, oh, I wish they were suffering for what they did to me. But you're the one suffering. You're the one that's being held back. Because those roots of bitterness begin to work its way in. And what is it keeping you from doing? Living in God's grace. Because you're no longer in the lane of humility. You're no longer in the lane of gratitude and thanks for what God has done for you. Because you have forgotten what great of a a transgression, sin track that God has wiped out in your own life. And that's where Jesus is headed with this next parable. He's like, you missed it, Peter. You're saying, how often should we forgive? He's saying, I'm saying, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I love what 
Martin Luther King Jr. says says this. He says, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. It's the same language that John would use in 1 John 1, 9. If I sin, I confess my sin, and he is faithful to forgive me. I walk in a habit of confessing my wrongdoing, is what that, that Greek translation really should be like. I walk in a lifestyle of confessing my sin, not harboring, not hiding, but walking in constant confession before the Lord that I may also walk in the faithfulness of his forgiveness. And if what we have received from the Lord is that, then it should be no different than what we extend to our fellow man and woman around us. We should walk in a constant attitude of forgiveness. And so Jesus moves on and he says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he begins to compare it to what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells this parable. It's so good. He says, the kingdom of heaven, you want one of the keys, Peter? Listen to this king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold. 10,000 bags of gold. Let me tell you what that would equate to. 10,000 talents. One talent would have equaled 20 days wage. So this is totaling roughly 200,000 days wage. That's, about, that's just shy of 548 years of earning. Is this guy ever going to be able to repay it? It's not even possible. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him an, an grievous amount of money, like there's no way he can't work this lifetime and the next lifetime and the next lifetime. And the next li- no, he, can't even, he can't even earn enough to be able to repay him. It's brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, <laughs> of course he wasn't, unless you're Tito, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be so, sold to repay the debt. That's still not going to add up. I don't care how many kids he has. I don't, if his last name's a Biddle and he's got five now, I mean, still, even at that, I hope you're listening, James. He says, at this, the servant fell on his knees. This is the imagery that, that, that Jesus is trying to paint about our Father in heaven with the ways of the kingdom. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. He's at the mercy of this king. There is no way that he can ever repay this debt. He's begging Please be patient with me. He's telling lies. I'll pay back everything. No, you won't. I know you can't. You can never pay off the debts that you owe to God. There's nothing that can equate. I don't know what you could bring as a sacrifice for your sin, but I think we learned from the last 6,000 years that it's not going to add up to anything that you're not going to have to keep doing over and over again. All right? That's the animal sacrifice system. It shows us that you can't do it. So Jesus did. You'll never be able to pay off a debt that you owe to a king because the wages are of sin or death. And the servant's master, he, he actually took pity on him and he canceled the debt and let him go. That's what forgiveness looks like. You owe something you can never pay and God grants you freedom and restoration and redemption And then you walk out the door, and when that servant went out, he found one of his his cronies that owed him money. And he owed him a hundred silver coins. That's a denarii. So a denarius was usually a day's wage. 
That was like what a daily worker would, would earn. And so we're talking about a little over three months of earnings that this guy owes. He can actually pay that off. That's possible. So we went from nearly 548 years to a little over three months. So that's the contrast of debts here. And Jesus says he goes out, he grabs him and begins to choke him. He didn't count to 10. He's not even trying to reach listening. No, the speaker listener, like he's burned that card. Pay back what you owe me. This is unforgiveness. This is what it's doing to us on the inside. And his fellow servant falls to his knees and begs him, says the same words, right? Be patient with me. I can actually pay you back. I actually can. It's only a little over three months. But he refused. And instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How's that going to work? Are you serious? Hey, you work for me and you owe me money. I, I'm firing you until you pay me back. Really? I'm going to throw you in jail until you can come up with it. Okay. This guy's really, really smart. And so he continues, and he says, When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. How outraged are you at unforgiveness? When you see it, when you see people propping up something other than restoration, how outraged are you at that? When you see people dividing and making more walls and actually erecting something over, over actual reconciliation, but it's really just another form of segregation, how outraged are you at that? How outraged are you when there is not mutuality coming together? When we can't even sit down and have a conversation and come to understanding and understand one another? How outraged are you at that? Because that's what the kingdom is saying should outrage the servants outside. That is what a kingdom key would include. So when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master, God, can you believe it? That guy you just let off the hook? For 550 years worth of, of working, dude owed him three months' wage, and he's throwing him in jail. And the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Still not going to happen. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So there are some scriptures that really catch me. Like, um, did, did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? There's, there's so many things about the sovereignty of God that you and I will never understand. But there's also some language, I believe, that is in the scripture where he, he takes that that angle of the pendulum swinging so far because he's actually going to just give us over to the way that we want it all along. So what happened to Pharaoh maybe is what Pharaoh was going to do no matter what. And so whether it was Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening his heart, Pharaoh just got what he wanted. Whether God is saying, hey, you know what? This is how I'm going to treat you too. You're going... Because we will lock ourselves up in a prison of bitterness if we walk in unforgiveness. I'm going to give you to what you wanted if that's what you want. Because I'm a gentleman and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to come in and force myself upon you to receive my forgiveness with gratitude. And that's the, that's the problem with the first guy. He doesn't come to his master and receive that the debt has been canceled. He's like, 
oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I could never have paid that back. I can't believe he just did that. Oh my God, you know how I'm going to celebrate? I'm going to forgive everyone that owes me anything. I'm actually going to invite them over and throw a party. I, I, don't even, I don't even know how to express my gratitude right now. There was no thanksgiving. There was no heart of gratitude on the other side of that man of what he had received from, from God for us, the king. And so often when we receive what we receive from the Lord, we compartmentalize it. We maybe can't forgive ourselves. We don't deserve it. Whatever it may be, we continue to walk in some sort of discombobulated relationship with God who is trying to give us a canceled debt. But we either don't want to accept it fully. We don't really want to believe it. We don't want it to change our hearts just yet because we really feel like we kind of deserve a little bit. Whatever it may be that keeps us locked up in that prison of bitterness because of our own sins and our own shame and our own guilt. That's why it's so important that we understand that in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no more of any of that. Because when we receive what He has done, I can breathe deep again. I don't have a mask. Like Nothing here is held back from receiving everything of what God has done for me. And now with gratitude... I'm able to give it. I'm able to extend it. Because the only way that we can extend anything is because we first received it from Him. Right? It all comes from Him. It flows through Him. It goes back to Him. To Him be the glory. It is about the King. It's not about the subjects. It is about the King. And we love because He first loved us. We forgive because He has first forgiven us. We care because He first cared for us. Jesus would talk about how the one who understands how much they've, forgiven, how much they've been forgiven, what, what will their life look like? Will they love little or they love much? And Luke records it this way. He says, therefore I tell you, this prostitute who just came before Jesus understands the depth of her forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I identify with her way more than I do some of the religious who approach Jesus. And I hope it is evident by how much I love, how much I can walk in constant forgiveness, how much grace I can extend. As soon as I find myself in a lane of holding back forgiveness from someone else, I've got to check my heart attitude with the Father. God, am I not, forgive, am I not allowing your forgiveness to come into my own life in some area? Am I beating myself up about some area? Because I'm, for some reason, I'm really wanting to beat them up. You know, I do the same thing, but yet here I am not wanting to let them off the hook. I want them to pay, but yet I sure hope I don't have to. God, is, is there an area where I am really walking and not receiving your forgiveness, your love, your mercy? Because I'm really struggling and extending it right now. And I'm not saying this is easy. That's where I wanted to go on the record at the beginning. This is a process. This is a journey, especially if someone has deeply hurt you. Especially if there was a situation where you're blaming God for something you don't, that we don't understand. But he's not afraid. He's not afraid of your hurt. He's not afraid of your questions. I said it to one of, we were in this DCS training this week to get extra hours for uh, being foster parents. And I used one of the lines like the same day on Levi because he was throwing a fit. And I said to Levi, I said, Levi, you're allowed to feel that way, but you're not allowed to talk to me that way. Like my three-year-old understands that. 
But I was just trying to, you know, use what I had learned. God is okay with your feelings. Just keep coming to him with them. Don't start using those to distance yourself to, man, God, I don't understand. Just keep talking to him. Let him work in your life. Keep showing up at the foot of his throne. Watch how he continues to be faithful, even when we don't understand. Even when we don't know how to put the pieces back together. Because the gratitude will begin to grow in our heart as we begin to understand and receive his forgiveness. And the one who has been loved much will also love much. And the one who has been forgiven much will also forgive much. But the one who loves little, well, I don't think they got it. I don't think they captured how great of a God we serve. Bruce, would you mind coming up? I hear people's stomachs growling. Just kidding. I remember as a teenager, um, I think I've shared parts of this story before, we were fasting as a family, and I was journaling, and, and I felt like the Lord had shown me a few people that I needed to go back. There were some people that I needed forgiveness from. I needed to go back and make some restoration. There are moments in our life where the Lord is like, hey, I'm, I've moved you into a place where restoration needs to happen in some of these relationships. And some of them may seem trivial, trivial to you, but it's, it's, sometimes it's just an act of obedience that the Lord's looking for. He's wanting to know how much you really value His forgiveness as well. Are you willing to go back and maybe be uncomfortable? to someone who's probably even forgotten about the incident just because he wants to see, have you accepted my forgiveness? Are you willing to give it? Are you willing to walk in it? And there may be moments that as you've, you've gone through different times of, of experiencing something like that where it's still constant. I don't know about you. We don't live in a, in a world where forgiveness is getting any easier or unnecessary. It's not going to happen on this side of eternity. It won't be the case. Hopefully we'll continue to be transformed more and more into his likeness. Hopefully my wife won't have to ask me to get things back together as often. You know, maybe, maybe I'll finally start to, to listen and understand. Hopefully we're, there's some change that is happening. But on this side of it, this is going to have to be a constant attitude, as MLK would say. This is not going to be a one-off occasion where I forgive, I let go, I move on. You may have to forgive the same person over the same issue multiple times because it's working deeper into your own heart. You may have to continue to release them because you released them, you released them a little bit until you're fully released of the bitterness and the hurt that they did to you because it's not holding them back at all. Unforgiveness is only keeping you captured in your past, poisoning your present, and in and disabling you from being able to live in the fullness that God has for you in your future. The Lord wants us to experience His love and His forgiveness in a way that would be fresh and revelatory today. He wants to expose that in our hearts where there are areas where it needs to continue to work into our lives. This to me is the most basic form of reconciliation that Christ has called us to, to be forgiven and reconciled with God and then to forgive and reconcile with one another. And so today I just want to ask you, would you receive his love afresh? Would you embrace his grace once again, humbly dependent upon him and him only for forgiveness more deeply? Reflect on what he has done in our lives today. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? How many times, Lord, what does forgiveness look like in the kingdom? 
because that's what we want. We want heaven here on earth. We want it in our lives. We want it in our relationships. Even if it's difficult, even if it's counterculture, are you, are you serious? You're going to be a, a doormat for these? No, I'm going to walk as Christ. I don't even have to speak to justify myself because I have surrendered and submitted myself to someone who is greater than myself, someone who has my best intentions in mind. I can humble myself. I can take the low road. That's where I begin to exalt his name because I trust him completely. I trust that he's a good father, that before I even open my mouth, he already knows what I need. And I receive his love and I receive his grace and I even receive it to forgive myself the things I'm ashamed of, the things I blame myself for. Lord, I receive the healing from those areas that this is what I'm going to be like. I'm always going to be. But Lord, you speak a new identity over us. You speak wholeness. You speak purpose. You speak destiny. You call out what is inside of us that isn't as if it were. We thank you, Holy Spirit, in this place that you are bringing a revelation to our lives of the greatness of God's love. I just believe this week that we're going to just stew in that. We're going to marinate in the, in the greatness of God's love, in the richness of his forgiveness. Help us to understand ourselves that we may know you, God. Our dependency, our need for you, our depravity to reflect your goodness. Freedom. We find freedom in this place as we receive your forgiveness and we can give it to others. We find freedom, Lord, as we go back to visit those places of hurt that need healing. We find freedom, Lord, that what you're doing now is the most Christ-like thing that could ever be done. We thank you that you still come to mend broken hearts to find us in our lostness. Thank you for forgiveness. If you're in this place and you say, Michael, this week I know there are some folks that I need to forgive with nobody looking around. And you say, I would like for you to agree with me that I would be able to walk in these veins, these avenues of forgiveness. It's something maybe you've been dealing with for years. It's something maybe is fresh and current. But whatever it may be, I believe the Lord's going to do a deeper work of that forgiveness in your own life and heart. Would you just raise your hand with me if that's where you're at? Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Father, I just pray for each of, each of us that are walking into um, some deeper areas of, of forgiving and releasing. God, we're going to find the keys to the kingdom are, are what you have given to us to bind and to loose, to walk in forgiveness, to receive it and to give it. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you be with us this week? Renew your love in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.